0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 36th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Soke. Today's guest is Andy Fitzell. Andy is one of the premier instructional coaches in the world and grew up learning from legendary tennis coach, Vic Braden. He's a USPTA elite professional and has coached young professionals, JJ Wolf and Kimberly Burrell over the last several years. On today's episode, we discuss how your brain type affects your motor skills, How long it takes to make a technical change, and debunking some of the greatest myths in tennis. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Andy, welcome to the pod.
1: Hey, thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for having me.
0: It's a treat for me to have you on because I've seen a lot of your videos online, and one of my regrets is like a younger coach is that I was a good player and I was coached by good coaches, and so I thought that. If I retire and call myself a coach, that makes me a coach. And I didn't really spend that much time learning in my early 20s. And I've learned a lot from you online in the last couple of years. And you are one of the people that pushed me towards Vic Braden and all of his teachings. And so for the listener who doesn't know, can you kind of give them a, a brief description of who Vic Braden was in the game of tennis and then how you two got started together?
1: Oh, wow. I'll see if I can run through that. Um, No, I'm glad you've been finding value in some of the online content that we've made. A lot of blood sweat and tears have gone into that. But Vic Braden, I would say first for the listeners, probably just Google it. um, He's got a pretty long Wikipedia there. But he's in the International Tennis Hall of Fame coach. He ran the tour back in the Jack Kramer days in the 60s. Then he started the Vic Braden Tennis College, did a ton of research in tennis and also in like 40 other sports. So he's a tennis, you know, researcher, but then he's also a licensed psychologist. The list kind of goes on and on and on, but he did a lot of research in in tennis and sport. He's one of those guys that would spend thousands and thousands of dollars to get high-speed film, you know, back in the 70s and really was able to break a lot of myths that were out there in tennis, you know, with the slow motion footage and things like that. But We could probably talk for an hour just on his background, but yeah, I would, I would Google Vic, but International Tennis Hall of Fame coach and amazing guy. So how did you... Where we, so yeah, where we first connected, so my family, I was born in Southern California and when I was four years old, we moved to Southern Utah, which is in the desert near Vegas. And luck would have it years later that he had a Vic Braden Tennis College there in that small town. So we moved back when I kind of got into tennis around 11 years old we moved back to southern california just so i would have so i'd have more opportunities with tennis and my brother was a musician kind of playing in bands in la and things like that we landed back in orange county i was probably 13 years old and my family didn't have a ton of money for you know lessons and things like that so we're just looking around different clubs and we found the vic braden tennis college and i had no idea who vic was and my family's You know, my mom to this day can't keep score in tennis, but she called them up and we went out there and I tried out, I think maybe a lesson or two and and then I didn't really have the money for lessons. So what they did is they put me on a work scholarship. So I was able to do, you know, yard work and string rackets and data entry and, you know, even one time cleaned up Vic's uh, famous tennis library. But so they were, they were nice enough to put me on a scholarship, and I was able to play out there for a couple of group lessons, and then I had kind of free reign to play tennis there whenever I wanted. So that you know, was probably a year to two years that I spent there, first getting to know Vic, and uh, you know, a lot of good memories. And then a few years later, we moved back to southern Utah, and the Vic Braden Tennis College was there. So I was training there, and then ended up pretty much started to teach right away, uh, before and after college.
0: So you mentioned the myths that he was able to dispel or, you know, shed light on some, maybe some technical issues by using that slow motion video. And I want to touch on a few that I became aware of, but I want to open up to you first and just which one do you think is the most important or your personal favorite that when you were exposed to that information, you kind of, your eyes were open. You're like, oh, wow, that's maybe counterintuitive to what I thought was actually happening.
1: It's a good question. I mean, there's, there's a lot of them, but really what happens at the impact point, how long the ball is on, on the strings, three to five milliseconds. And just to give people a, a reference point, if you stick at your tongue just quickly and you go, that's about hundred milliseconds. So the ball is not on the string very long. And then it takes about 50 to 70 milliseconds for the sensation of hitting the ball to reach your brain. So by the time you've even felt it, the ball is long gone. So that's really one of the, okay, what is, you can't come over the ball, you can't carve the ball you, know, you can't, the feeling may be that, that you, you know, you're going to come over the top of the ball or, or peel the orange on a slicer, but that doesn't happen. So what happens at the moment of truth? That That's a big one. The roll of the wrist. And that's kind of a bit of a pun as well, but so just watching in slow motion that Players would say, you know, I I roll my wrist over the ball or things like that. And then you just see the wrist really fixed. So ground strokes, volleys, you know, just the impact point and how long the ball is actually on the strings. And then with the serve, you know, there was a lot there that he did with, you know, scratching your back and some of the things that were taught in the former times. I would say, you know, that was a big one. Toss the ball high for more time where actually you know the higher you toss the ball the faster it's dropping through the window of your racket so you actually have less time to hit the ball so although it may seem a little bit more rushed to people when they have a low toss it actually the ball sits in the window of the racket longer so so those are a few of of the myths that um, we talk about a lot and you know staying down for example on ground strokes whatever force you push off the ground goes back up through your body so if you stay down you oppose your own swing. You oppose the forces that are working, you know, with the ground reaction force of the kinetic chain. So you don't actually want to try to stay down. You're really just going to let the body unwind and lift. And he shows in his videos, if you were to go watch, like for example, the Vic Braden backhand video, which I think is on YouTube, you know, he'll show that when you stay down, it's the acceleration rate that stops or deceases when you stay down. So you know, you see the racket accelerate, but the rate of acceleration actually decreases when you stay down.
0: You already touched on a couple incredible ones there. I want to go a little more in depth. So the first one that kind of blew my mind was I was taught like a windshield wiper forehand. Like I was Mm going to take my racket and kind of like, I don't know, like I was cleaning the windshield. And it's a very wristy motion. And whenever I hit topspin, I just assumed, like you said, covering the ball or brushing up. And then when I've seen... Top swings online, pretty much any quality forehand swing, you know that wrist flexion is kind of stable throughout the contact point, and even well after that ball is gone. Can you kind of explain that yeah. that concept to people? So a lot of people think it's a very risky shot, but I think maybe when you explain it, they realize it's not that risky.
1: Yeah, it's really you don't want to try to do it. So when the forearm goes forward and and you know, back in the '90s, maybe late '80s, '90s, when Vic was talking about that, he would say pre-stretch, the pre-stretch forehand. We did three research of Agassiz and and he showed that where when the form goes forward, the wrist would go back. So action reaction. You know, Gil Reyes. When Vic showed that to Gil, he was not aware of that. He was just like, "Whoa, what's what's that?" But so there's that movement. And then when the when the forearm goes forward, the wrist lays back. So nowadays they're calling it lag and snap, right? So then the, the wrist comes back to a fixed position at the contact point and then it will stay fixed, you know, at least 12 to 18 inches is what you're after for a hitting zone. And then you really see the forearm pronate. But when you see all that fat, you know, you just it just looks like players are being really risky. The other risky part of that is that you know in pro tennis you're looking at the top players of the game which people love to do on youtube is they're constantly improvising you know it's it's not like you're just always set to hit a perfect on balance forehand or backhand you know you're hitting on the run high balls low balls you know it's they're constantly having to use the fine motor shots you know sometimes you'll have to use maybe a little bit more of your forearm but when you're working on fundamentals you don't want to be trying to turn the doorknob or windshield wiper, or things like that. And that goes back to Jonathan, I'm being a little long-winded, but it goes back to just knowing the dimensions of the court. If people really understood that there's less than 20 degrees of variance the racket face has to go to go corner to corner, that's very, very little. So the size of the court, you know, looks gigantic to the eyeball, but if you just look at how much you have to move the racket, less than 20 degrees to go corner to corner, you don't want to be using your wrist. So Vic would say, you know, in tennis, you're really at war with the wrist.
0: Another concept with a ground stroke, we'll stick with a forehand, that's fine. But, you know, generating, I've heard you guys describe it as like pure topspin or, or whatever, but the ability to hit topspin is obviously crucial to be consistent and to be able to hit a little faster and to hit with height over the net. What are the basic fundamentals for creating good topspin?
1: Well, I mean, it's cliche to say low to high. But we say inside out, you know, inside out, low to high. So from close to away from your body, where if you're up too high, most people don't get below the ball. So if you're up too high, let's say ball level, then the swing goes more outside in. So you always want to be swinging low to high inside out. And then that's where, you know, the friction with the tennis strings against the ball for those few milliseconds, the low to high swing path. So whatever angle you swing up and the speed that you swing up will determine how much spin the ball gets. And then you're going to have basically a vertical racket face close to it. I mean, you could say, okay, on a few shots that are hit really hard, somebody may have a racket face that's slightly closed. But it's not like you're going to tell your student, hey, just close the racket face three degrees there. (laughs) You know, it's like just, yay. It's just keep keep the, the vanilla ice cream in the bowl first and then you can add the magic shell and the sprinkles later.
0: I like that when the the thing is is I, you know good players what is it they don't say what they do and don't do what they say but yeah you know like I would have thought that there were definitely balls like if you hit a fastball to me deep on the baseline and I kind of just flicked my hand at it I, I in my mind I am closing my strings a little more and then if I look at that shot on video in slow motion, it's just not nearly as closed as I thought it was. And yeah, again, that's like a thought or a feel, but I guess you always have to match those feels up with like what's actually happening.
1: Yeah, for sure. But, but, but taking that, I mean, for example, when you take the ball, you know, just off the bounce, you know, for a half volley, let's say, and you slightly hood the racket face, then, then the angle coming off the strings will keep the trajectory low. But if you're on the baseline, you, you really have to knock the, the fuzz off the ball to get the ball over the net, you have to get, you know, below the ball and and swing up. That's why we always say, you know, big tennis is a lifting game in the research he did, which is getting below the ball and swinging up from about a four foot height, if you swung on a pure horizontal plane, you had to hit the ball 212 miles per hour to get it to clear the net. And he would say, if you could do that, you'd have hair on your tongue and live in a tree. So it's, it's just not possible, which you'll see, you know, you watch any of the top guys. I mean, the women aren't too far behind, but, you know, they maybe crack 100 miles per hour on on a few groundies, and it's incredible speed when you see it, but that's not average.
0: Let's go back to something you just touched on a second ago, and you were talking about the dimensions of the court and the 20 degrees, but also the shape of the court. You know, I was one of those coaches who would draw on a dry erase board, draw a picture of a court, and Mm -hmm. I guess it was kind of a rectangle, but it was honestly way too close to a square, and my... (laughs) service box was more than half the court or sorry my yeah. the back of my court you know it wasn't dimensionally correct and you know we yeah. know that it's almost 3 times as long as it is wide can you just describe how that shape of the court should influence maybe both a little bit of technique but also maybe some tactics
1: yeah so as far as technique goes yeah just understanding that you barely have to bury the racket face the angle of the racket face left to right to go corner to corner less than 20 degrees so if you're in the middle half mark it's actually 19.6 if you're on the sideline it's 19.1 so if you can just imagine it being more of a long narrow sidewalk try to match your forward and upward swing to the court a little bit more so you could think of a sidewalk a train track you know just anything that's a little more linear just especially uh when you're having problems with you know with control missing the ball wide most people are just pulling their left side on the forehand even in the pro game they're pulling their left side they're missing wide. they're missing in the net because of it but so just trying to match your forward and upward swing to the shape of the core which we know is a, a rectangle but it's it's a pretty narrow one and then part two was tactically yeah i mean so angle begets angle if you can hit the ball deep and down the middle as billy jean king said You can beat everybody in the world. The problem is is you can't do that. Even the best players in the world, it's very difficult to hit the ball deep more than a few times in a row. If you're creating angles too much, that can make you run. In today's game, you just don't see that many people going forward, but they're all trying to work on it. But so if you can just work on playing deeper, especially when you're behind the court, deeper and towards the middle, when you're behind the court or on the baseline, and then as you move closer to the net, those angles open up to you from the service line you know you're you're gonna get around 27 degrees if you get halfway between the sort of service line and that you get 30 degrees if you get three feet from that you get 130 degrees so the closer you get to that the more angles open up the further you're back the the smaller the angle becomes so just being aware of some of that geometry can help you reduce the amount of errors you make
0: this is going to be a difficult question because I'm gonna to try to get you in the mind of crazy town but you and every other coach or great player has talked about you know depth and of course hitting through the middle at certain times and amateurs and juniors it's it's just always angle angle wide 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 you know a lot of them are getting this information but that preset you know instinct is to always be stretching someone wide instead of maybe like oh i can rush them deep or move them back why do you think that is like the default setting for most players that they want to go wide and not deep through the middle
1: well, it's more fancy to go to do the the wide and the angles. I mean, when you watch highlights, right, for matches, usually you see the incredible shot making. You don't see kind of the boring <laughs> the boring average rally shots that are maybe only a few hits that were hit deep. So I think that's one thing is people think they have to have tons of variety and creativity when really, you know, and going back to a Braden theme it's just you gotta just learn to hit the same old boring winner. So I think I think that's a big part is people just they want to play tv tennis but there is still a lack of understanding if they just understood the dimensions of the court and how little room you really have to play with that helps it goes a long way
0: so i know we're bouncing around a little bit but there's just a couple of these you know myths and topics and i just want to give everyone just a little taste of you know kind of the stuff that that you teach and and the facts here but talking about the volley I always had a continental grip. I had Kelly Jones on a couple episodes ago and I was talking about how I had a continental grip for my volleys and my racket face always felt very open. I had a hard time with high forehand volleys and I didn't really understand the angle of my racket face at contact. I would have said as an early coach and for sure as a player that my racket, when I made contact with a volley was a 45 degree angle. So can you tell everyone listening why I was completely wrong on that one?
1: Well, the, the continental grip does open the racket face. If you were to just have, let's say, an eastern forehand grip in a ready position and then and then just turn the racket to a continental grip, the racket face is open 45 degrees up into the left for a right-hander. So it is open 45 degrees, but at contact it's not going to be that way. You have to match that open racket face to a downward swing or you have to swing on an arc to get the racket face vertical at the hit. So it's either you're going to adjust your grip or you're going to adjust your wrist. And, and nowadays really what you see most players on the tour, they'll have a composite forehand grip. And if they don't make any kind of grip change or heel pad change at all, then they're, they're having to change the wrist forward. And if you're strong, okay, you can stabilize it with a vertical racket, but you still put the wrist in a a really vulnerable position for injury. But most of the time, you just see they have a really downward racket path. So they, there's a lot of calculation involved with that downward swing, not to mention a net in front of you, and then Understand floats. I mean, it's, there's just all kinds of reasons.
0: I, I've seen this on great base before, and it was not taught to me, and obviously, I don't play anymore, so it's not like I'm going to work on it. But I've, I've heard people say it's okay to have two volley grips, You know, a forehand volley grip and a backhand volley grip. And... I've heard some people just say that's the most ridiculous thing ever. And some people say that it, you know, you have the same amount of time. And can you just kind of explain your stance on that and kind of what those options are?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, if you, let's just say you have a composite forehand grip where you're in between an Eastern forehand and a continental that can just help you with a very little amount of wrist adjustment to square the racket up and hit it, hit it flat, hit it hard, and then be able to drive through the volley and have a hitting zone. So in case your timing is early, you're still going to be good. So same thing on the backhand side, if you can get the racket head square by getting the grip over towards panel number one, we'll say the right side of panel one, even if you went to in between one and a continental, it helps you square the racket up and then you can drive it forward. So the whole point of that is that you put the arm in the most efficient position as far as the wrist is concerned, right? It's not in a vulnerable position for injury. And then you can hit the ball flat, you can hit it hard. You can stick the volley and then you can go forward so you can have a hitting zone. And that's really what we try to focus on, on all the strokes is just that, you know, forehand, backhand, volleys, underspin is that you can have a safety zone, right? In case you're early, you're still going to be good. And then that goes right back to the dimensions of the court. Got that long, narrow sidewalk. So you keep the racket going towards your target.
0: I'd love if you could elaborate uh, to finish up on this technical side and, and I'll be doing videos for the listeners out there so they can see some of the things you're talking about, but you're doing a good job of explaining it without being able mm-hmm. to give a visual. But with the, with the serve, you briefly touched on in the beginning and you said you know, about the height of the toss and the rate that it's dropping. And that's something that a lot of people push back on because they feel very rushed. Can you just touch on that again and explain maybe what the optimal height of a toss would be and then why that makes sense?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll get to I just thought, you know, with the word timing and time on the body. So the big thing, hey, you don't have time to switch. Well, if you have time to turn your shoulders, you have time to switch your grip. It's just that it takes, like anything, it takes practice. And most people aren't being taught, hey, work on a grip change. But you'll see even the best players in the world, a lot of times they will shift their grip and they don't even know it. You know, they'll make a small adjustment with the heel pad. You, know, you just really have to look closely. You just watch their fingers and they're, they're dancing around. But so you do have time. Um, you just have to practice it as far as that goes. With the timing on on the ball toss is what you were talking about?
0: Yeah, just with the serve. Like a lot of players launch their ball toss and there's some pros that do it too. And so then if you see a pro doing that, then you assume that that's just the greatest <laughs> thing in the world. But you know, there's a lot of pushback because if someone lowers their toss – even a little bit, they feel very, very rushed and, oh my God, how can I you know, get my swing in and all this stuff? So can you kind of just explain that concept in a little more detail? Yeah,
1: I mean, it's natural for people that they have a high toss to go to a low toss, that, yeah, it's gonna feel rushed, but most people make the mistake where when they get into a low toss, they toss first and usually straight out in front of them. And so when you put the tossing arm up first, it takes the right arm, the if you're a right-handed player, the racket arm a lot longer to catch up to the toss. So the idea, what you want to do is delay the toss by turning the body first. So the arms, you'll, you'll start to go back, you know, when the weight goes back, your left arm, if you're a right-handed player would go more parallel with the baseline. And then you try to bring your arms up a little bit more in unison. So together. So by the time you get to where people would say the trophy position, we say the, the mirror position or salute position, where the racket would be, you know, more over your head. By the time you get to that position, that's about when you're tossing the ball. And of course, people do it. They have some lag before that. Players like Kyrgios, for example, but then he speeds up the racket really well. But if you can delay the toss by just turning your body then tossing, that helps. And then you're not going to have that rushed feeling because you're basically halfway through your swing by the time you've released the ball.
0: Is there a, is there an exact height or a reference point? You know, if I reach up all the way and I make contact with my serve, is there a baseline figure If you say I toss it 12 inches above my contact or exactly to my contact or 20 inches? Is there a reference point like that?
1: No, I mean, Vic used to always say 20 inches out of your outstretched hand, which is basically the distance from your hand to the, you know, to the middle of the sweet spot of the strings. Uh, we've got a lot of players where they just reach up on a wall you go up on your tippy-toes mark a spot Put a band-aid on the wall and then toss to that spot. I Was telling a player the other day Roscoe Tanner who was a famous big server with a low toss it Looked like he hit it on the way up, but he hit it at the apex He would knock the leaves off of a tree reaching up as high as he could and then he would toss to the broken leaves Obviously you just don't want to have a toss. that's so high that you have to stop the momentum of your swing so we tell players, program your swing and then toss your swing. But most people have their swing programmed by their toss in a negative way. So the high toss gives them more time to add extra movements that are unnecessary or even to have a hitch or pause in their swing. So then you have to start all over again.
0: Yeah. And then you get used to that hitch and then you think that's what you need. And so I need to make sure I have that time. They get so upset when when they don't have time to make those extra movements and I'm like, you just have more time to get in trouble.
1: yeah, they just don't realize those extra movements or why people don't recognize them
0: so we we just did a ton of just a brief drive by of all these different shots and some techniques and some fundamentals and players are usually fairly resistant to work on new things. It takes a lot of time like what is your stance or or what is your take on you know the amount of time it takes? to rewire your brain or kind of change the technique, whether, you know, some people have major surgery to do, some people have minor surgery, but what is that process like?
1: Well, yeah, you have to be open to change. Number one, that's, that's for sure. If you have any doubts about the change, then it's usually not going to happen. If the pain of changing is greater than the pain you feel when you lose, people don't change. So, you know, you have to be kind of all in, so to speak, you okay. Hey, I look at the science of that, the rationale, the facts. that makes sense. Now let's go do it. If you can do that, the process is going to go a lot faster. So for example, to throw out this video, that's become sort of famous that I made for fun when I worked with JJ uh, Wolf when he was a kid and changed his serve from a palm up to a palm down. It was basically just really, I mean, he's an athletic kid at 15, but it was just a few days and within a week, he had grasped that concept pretty darn well, going from palm up to palm down, you know, but he, he was all in. It's like, okay, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, we're going to do that. I think the average for most people could be eight weeks is what Vic used to say. And you get it, you lose it, you get it, you lose it. You know, it takes, it takes time and, and there's definitely some frustration. You have to be comfortable being uncomfortable when you're making changes, but it really, I think a lot of it's mental where how many reps you're going to put into it and how much you kind of believe, okay, this is, this is it. I'm going to, I'm going to make it. I'm going to do this. You can't have doubts.
0: That makes a lot of sense. You said it's the pain of the pain of losing has to be greater than the pain of that change. Cause it is a painful process. That makes a yeah. lot of sense and it does take time. Can you briefly explain, I, I, this is something you've touched on and I'm aware of it, but I don't have a great grasp on it. Can you explain myelin?
1: I, I'm not a myelin expert, but basically if you, you just think of the, the signals of your brain, the wires, right? The, the, more, the more you repeat something, then myelin is what insulates that and makes, makes it the signal faster and smoother. So it's kind of you can think of a, a wire and the, the rubber around it that would be a way where it's like, okay, the more, you, the more you repeat something, the more, the thicker that becomes the insulation, if that makes sense.
0: So how does that relate to, to improve or changing the, the technique of a shot?
1: Yeah. So you, every rep counts, so you don't, you don't want bad myelin, you know, even if you're, let's say for example, if you're just warming up returns, I'm always on my players like, Hey, just every rep counts. No, no sloppy reps. It's like get in there and make a good rep every single time because you just don't want to have sloppy, bad reps. So there's good myelin and bad myelin. So you just, whatever you're trying to work on, just try to work on that one thing. Take the best swing you can every single time.
0: I see uh, there's two things here. My wife used to coach golf and the first time I ever dragged her out for a lesson she said, she goes, okay, you should probably stop taking practice swings. And I was like, why? And she's like, well, your practice swing is awful. So you're just <laughs> practicing a horrendous swing. Like just doing nothing is probably an improvement on that. And then. No, exactly. Yeah. And then I see warm ups a lot and people come out and they're not really moving their feet. And it looks like maybe they're trying to get their body loose, but they're not super focused. And I'm like, you just spent 10 minutes repping a lot of things that you probably don't want. And if you multiply that 10 minutes times whatever, 300 days a year that you might be playing, that's a lot of minutes that you are practicing something that you shouldn't be. No, exactly. You,
1: you, you want to maximize your time. You, a line that Vic would use is you want to practice in the manner which you're expected to perform. So when you're on the practice court, it's like, hey, you know how you practice is how you're going to play. You know When you're just talking about Um, Motor programming and my line and all that kind of stuff. It's like every rep counts I always chuckle when I watch fitness videos with tennis players where they You know, they're moving really intense and and then their shadow swings are just all You know, they look like a snake going into a hole, you know, it's like are you aware of what your racket work is doing there? And you know, I know they're just trying to kind of take a little Swing at it, but it's like hey Why not go over there and take the best swing you can as if you're you're really hitting a ball in front of you Because it's really the way they're shadow swinging when they do those kinds of drills is not doing their their swing any good.
0: We have a couple Instagram questions, and one of them I kind of modified because I actually watched a video with you recently and I found it incredibly fascinating. You were talking about, they were asked, the question originally was about the brain and how that relates to the style of play and your technique, but I watched a video of you on YouTube, I think. And you were explaining that based on your brain type, you might be predispositioned to have certain technical flaws or certain, certain techniques or, or aspects of your body that you may want to use more. Can you kind of elaborate on that?
1: Yeah. So one of Vic's partners, I would say that he worked a lot with, his name is John Nienagel and his son, Jeremy, as well is doing continuing a lot of John's work. But he, John has a book. There's a few out there. One's called Your Best Sport. And he's taken the Myers-Briggs concept with brain typing or personality typing and, and taking it a few steps further with motor skills. And so and it might be a whole – we have a whole episode on brain typing. but So everybody's either an introvert or an extrovert. They're in the moment or intuitive. So they're an S or an N. They're a thinker or a feeler or they're a J or a P meaning they like structure and organization, or they like to go with the flow, but the middle two letters will connect to your, to your motor skills. So for example, if you're an SF brain type, a sensate feeler, you're gross motor skilled, So you're going to be really good at using the large muscles of your body. If you're an ST, you're fine motor skilled. So you're going to be really good at, you're going to be basically genetically wired to use from your thing, your finger to your elbow. And so most, it's, it's fascinating with John's work, and this is, I'm going through this super fast, but basically if you look at any quarterback that's been legendary, they're an ESTP. So they're an extrovert. They want to make things happen. They're fine motor skilled. And the P's can go with the flow. So for example, if, if somebody's taken the wide receiver that they were supposed to hit, if they're taken, they're like, oh, no problem. I'll just hit that guy. But so for example, like Ryan Leaf way back in the day when he was paid like $55 million became a flop. John told them, Hey, don't pick this guy because his brain type, he was a J. He's, he's not going to do well at the pro game. They were like, ah, oh, that's nonsense. But it it was 100% correct. So there's going to be with tennis players. If you look at the WTA, which is very interesting, a lot of the legends, you had Lindsay Davenport under the ESFP. So they're... Gross motor skilled players, are, I always say they're big mamas, you know, they, they use their body really well. Coil on coil, SFs can hit two-handed backhands really well because they, they know how to coil and then coil the body. And then on the men's side, you see more of the fine motor skilled players, the NTs, the STs. So for example, like Yannick Sinner, I would guess almost 100% is an ISTP brain type. And so they're very good at, at the fine motor skills. And the hand-eye coordination, it's, yeah, we could go on and on and on about brain typing, but that's, that's another tool where it's like, okay, as a coach, I'll brain type the players that I'm working with. And then I can know, you know, it's from how their body works, where you want to keep working on their strengths and then also where they may be weaker. And it's also how they, I was going to say, it's how they perceive the world too, you know, a, a P. If someone's a P brain type, they're not going to be the most organized people in the world. So you need to really give them structure. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what we did. Here's what we're doing tomorrow. And then a J will really want that too. A J wants to know, hey, what are we doing? What's the plan? We, you know, I want to have structure. You know, knowing those little things can, can help you relate to the person that you're coaching.
0: So is that something when you're working with a new player or, or you get to meet them, do you actually have them – Take a test, or do you just kind of pick up on that observationally since you've been around for so long and you know what to look for? Like for an amateur player out there and you're hearing this, like I actually want to go take it so I know for my golf game, not my tennis game. <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm kind of curious, like, what am I? And then I go, Oh, that makes sense. I can kind of see what he's talking about. Should everyone out there be aware of what they are in this in this regard? Oh, for sure. I think
1: it's fun. I mean, it does put you in the box because there's nature nurture. John would say, Nindawa, he would say it's 60 40. Nature versus nurture—the way you know your background, the way you grew up. I, I'm a P, but I grew up in a pretty like a J household, you know. So when when you, we had our couch, it was like you don't really sit on the couch. There's 19 pillows, you know. So yeah, I think it's I think it's fun. It's good to know. And then yeah, for, for even life, you know, I've I've helped friends with their relationships and family members, and it's like hey, you you know, they see the world like this, and you like this. You got to meet in the middle. So it doesn't have to be, you know, put you in the box at all, but I I think it's just another tool that's definitely helpful. And yeah, to answer your question, I 100% will brain type players, even just in the moment, if I'm teaching somebody that I've never met before, it's like, okay, let
0: me see how this person is
1: and then I can help them. But then the players that I work with long-term, 100% will have them take tests.
0: And then the most difficult question of the podcast, because you have so much great information, so many things that you could help people with, what is your best advice for the 40 singles player?
1: That's a good question. Gosh, we, we saw so many three, fives, four-0s coming to the tennis college all these years, and one of the frustrating parts would be you'd see somebody and they'd come back the next year and they're exactly the same. It's like, come on man. hey. Bob, you know, I told you your forehand's too, too far behind your body, too long here. What, what happened? You know, we gave the information. So for a 4-0 player, I mean, it's always going to come down to fundamentals. But I would say good advice would be just take one shot, you know, that, that you really need to improve. It could be serve, backhand, whatever it may be going forward. Take one shot and just take a year and really work and master that shot and get better. You know, just say, Hey, this year I'm gonna learn how to hit a top swim back in because time flies and people, you know, people just end up being the same. And if you just you wanna be the same, that's fine, but you know, why not why not get better? There's there's four basic areas in tennis, right? You have to hit, run, compete, and recover. And really for any tennis player, not just a four oh. When I work with a player on tour, this is exactly the areas it's like, Hey, what what can you do in each one of those areas better and try to do a little bit of those things every day. So, okay, how can you improve today with your hitting? How can you improve today with your running, your fitness? What can you do from the mental, emotional side? And then, how can you recover better with your food, your sleep, your stretching, those kind of things? So, just try to try to do a little bit of all those four areas every day. You're going to be much better. You know, you can say the the one point one percent better every day. But the general tip would be, hey, just take one area of your game, one thing, and just work on it for a year.
0: <laughs> so so let's pretend then that some of the listeners out there are so willing to listen to you and take your information. They go, Andy, that's a great idea. And then they're trying to figure out how to pick that shot. Would you? How would you pick that shot? Would you go with a strength and go, maybe I can make this insanely good? Would you go with a biggest weakness? Or how would you evaluate which one of those ways you, each individual should go?
1: You could, you could, you could go with the strength for sure. Hey, maximize your strength. Again, the level. So, you know, if you're at a higher and higher level, people are going to find your weakness. So if you've got a hole in your game and they're going to find it. So I think, you know, trying to patch up the holes is the way I would go first. It's like, Hey, you, you know, you got this hole and then obviously keep working on your strengths, but find the biggest hole in your ship, in your boat and try to try
0: to fix that hole. Love that. Andy, I appreciate your time. Um, obviously, this is a more on the technical side, but like I said, you're watching your information online and, and getting exposed to Vic. Total eye-opener for me in the last couple of years, and I'm still trying to grasp it all, but um, so much great stuff here. Hopefully, people are paying attention, and will be Googling Vic and watching your stuff online, but thanks so much for your time today.
1: Oh, no worries, and hopefully it was meaningful. I know uh, we could ramble forever, and, and uh, there's so much to, to talk about with with tennis, you know, development, but yeah, it's been a pleasure.
0: All right. I want to thank Andy for coming on the show. I highly recommend Googling him and watching as much of his online content as you possibly can find on YouTube and the great base tennis website. Two things stood out to me today. Obviously the serve is one of the most important shots in tennis and the height of the toss is something I wish I knew when I was playing. I now toss it only slightly higher than I can fully extend up, and my consistency day-to-day has really improved. The other quick thing that we touched on was his estimate of eight weeks to improve a skill. His line that the pain of losing has to be greater than the pain of change if you want to improve is so true. The process of changing technique is often painful, and sometimes you take a few steps back at first before seeing even the slightest bit of progress, but push through plug the biggest hole in your ship and be a better tennis player next year at the same time. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or a review so we can keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.